If you're a regular Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on iTunes or using the podcast app on your phone. And to want to give a special thank you to Kerbig, who just gave us this five-star review. I've listened on and off for a couple of years, but recently became a patron after listening regularly and now going back through the extensive library. Love the movie and series reviews, as well as the author interviews and book reviews. I've bought several books, most recently Intergalactic Refrigerator Repairman sells him carry cash and The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. Both are great. I also love how David always remembers to give a synopsis of the subjects being discussed. Excellent. Look forward to each episode. Thanks and keep up the great work. So big thanks again to Kerbig for that great review. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 496 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new movie, The Matrix Resurrections, the fourth film in the Matrix series. And this will include spoilers for everything in the movie, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Raphael Jordan, making his 15th appearance on the show. He's written over 25 feature films, including Lost Colony, The Legend of Roanoke, The Immortal Voyage of Captain Drake, and Star Runners. He also co-created and co-wrote Salvage Marines, an upcoming space opera series starring Casper Van Dien and Peter Shinkoda. And he's the lead guitarist of Visera, an L.A.-based rock band who provided music for the series. So Raphael, welcome to the show. Always a pleasure. The next up, we've got Teresa DeLucci, making her 14th appearance on the show. Her articles have appeared on Boing Boing and Den of Geek, and her short fiction has appeared in or is forthcoming in Strange Horizons, Weird Horror, Lightspeed, and Tor.com, where she also reviews books, TV, and video games. So, Teresa, welcome to the show. Glad to be back. Hi. And also joining us today is Lisa Yazik, making her ninth appearance on the show. She's Regents Professor of Science Fiction Studies at Georgia Tech, and author of the nonfiction books Galactic Suburbia, Sisters of Tomorrow, and The Future is Female. She also appeared in the AMC miniseries James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction. So, Lisa, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks. Okay, so let's start off with Raphael. So how big of a fan are you of the original Matrix movie? <laughs> pretty big. Um, I've been a pretty outspoken advocate of uh, the whole trilogy for a while now, especially the two sequels. Okay, interesting. So do you just have any uh, memories of what it was like watching the Matrix for the first time? Uh, absolutely. Well, the first film I saw in college in 1999, and yeah, it was mind-blowing. You know, it was really, you knew you were watching something unique and, and groundbreaking. And when the sequels came out, um, I must have watched Reloaded every day for about six months when it came out on DVD, seriously. Like the whole <laughs> Chateau fight sequence to Freeway Chase and the finale. Um, for me, the first Matrix was perfect, but the two sequels were kind of the real meat of the story. Um, I don't know. That's, I know not everyone felt that way, but for me, that was always where the real action was at. Okay, that's interesting because I did not feel that way. Um, but I mean, I definitely, you know, I was in college. I was like 20. I, actually, I was at the Clarion Writers Workshop when I saw The Matrix for the first time. So I was 21. And uh, yeah, I just, I just really liked it. I mean, it, at the time, I feel like maybe it was just the people I was with, but there was a lot of, a lot of people were like, oh, it doesn't make sense or it's kind of dumb or whatever. 
And um, I, 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 I did think it, there were some, some things about it that I wasn't sure really made sense, but uh, I just loved so much the, the whole atmosphere of it and the visuals. And yeah, like you said, the fights and everything. And I think that that opening scene where Trinity flees from the agents is just the perfect way to start off a movie. I think that's as good as it gets in terms of just establishing this atmosphere of mystery and excitement and danger and everything. Absolutely. And from a, from a script perspective, it really is just kind of a tight, perfect script. I could do a deep dive on that. I'll send you a blog link at some time when I write it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. That first movie, it's just like, bam, bam, bam. Like every scene is propelling the plot forward. And, and yeah. Um, how about Teresa? What was your experience watching The Matrix for the first time? Yeah. I mean, similarly, college age. Uh, I think I was working at Borders at the time. So that's how long ago it was now when the first Matrix movie came out and completely blown away by the special effects. Uh, Keanu Reeves just seemed perfect in it. His, his perfectly timed, whoa, you know, <laughs> at seeing those amazing special effects. And, you know, at the time I was also really big in, into going to Goth Industrial Club. So the whole aesthetic was very much my thing. Um, and I ended up really loving it. Loved the second one quite a lot. And then the third one, yeah, maybe not so much. Um, to the point where, yeah, I have some memories of seeing that for the theater as well, memorable for the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I feel like if, if for people who weren't around when The Matrix came out, I feel like it had this cultural impact that it's hard to overstate. I mean, I, I remember people saying like, oh, this is our generation, Star Wars. And that's really, that is really how it felt. And I felt like it just, you know, it impact, you know, everyone had seen it even. I feel like before that, um, there had been some movies about virtual reality, like, Johnny Mnemonic or The Lawnmower Man that really only the hardcore science fiction fans would have gone to see. And The Matrix, just everybody saw it and everybody was, you know, familiar with all these concepts. And there was stuff that was really cool, like the idea of, uh, like, uh, uploading martial arts skills into your brain in a second. You know, there's stuff that, these really cool sci-fi concepts that, that now everyone was familiar with. And yeah, and I feel like it inf uh, influenced fashion and it just had, it just had this big, Impact that yes, I mean, did in the scene in the um the scenes you were in already was were people already wearing all that the sunglasses and black yeah, absolutely, and all that kind of lots stuff, of or? leather, vinyl, plastic hair, goggles for no reason, absolutely. <laughs> so did the Matrix affect affect that at all, or it, it was already that's already what the aesthetic was? I mean, I think that it definitely had a fetishy aesthetic to begin with uh in the matrix so yeah it was more just like oh someone who's kind of familiar with us and our scene made this movie you know for people like us you mm -hmm. know yeah, yeah. It's, it's it felt kind of special yeah how about so how about lisa what was it like for you watching matrix for the first time well like the rest of you i really liked it um i thought it was really great i thought it was i also saw it in the theater um, I was in graduate school and, you know, I was in graduate school. I was training as a postmodernist. And so I was living like in, you know, the, the simulacra and the desert of the hyper real for like a decade already. So it was hmm. so awesome to go see the, the movie because like they're all talking about the same stuff I was reading. It just felt like my life continued to flow. 
And also, Teresa, I was also an industrial goth at that time who hung out at Barnes and Noble sometime. How funny. I wonder if we ever somehow crossed paths. Um, and I agree with you. It felt like, uh, the movie was recognizing a subcultural style that was totally already there. I mean, my goodness. Um, and did it well, though, I thought, like in a way that it, it looked pretty great. Like who doesn't want to look as slick as, um, any of the characters in the Matrix, right? Um, but so <laughs> I really liked it. Um, and I'm with Raphael. I like the sequels better than um, I love the original up until the last five minutes, in which case I got so angry with those last five minutes. It absolutely the minute Neo took off in the sky, I was like, wow, you just ruined this entire movie for me. I mean, it felt like such an un cyberpunk moment. I was like, what is going on here? But then I saw the next two movies and I totally understood everything. And 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 now I get it. So we're cool. <laughs> OK, because I'll, I'll because I. You know, I, I, as I said, I really liked the first movie. I got it on VHS and I just watched it over and over again. And then when the Matrix Reloaded came out, I, I was really excited for it. And I really liked it the first time I saw it. And, you know, I thought that the, like, like Roth said, the, the vampire chateau fight was fantastic. Uh, the freeway chase stuff I thought was fantastic. I actually liked the scene with the art. There's this like sort of much maligned scene with the architect. But I, I, I liked that. Uh, yeah. I liked the idea that this was all sort of had all happened before, and it was he was still sort of trapped in this uh, this sort of loop and and everything. And my thing with the Matrix Reloaded at the ends is there's this scene where he's able to kind of blast the squid robots in the real world, and right. I thought that that was heavily implying that the real the real world was just another level of the Matrix, and that. You know, people who were sort of malcontents who, who couldn't deal with the, the, the matrix got booted out into this other fantasy worlds where they got to play revolutionaries, but it was all still, they were all still trapped in the matrix and that that's what that was, you know, suggesting. And so I was kind of, I, I thought that was a really interesting idea and I was looking forward to seeing how that played out in the third movie. And then the third movie did something completely different and I, I didn't really like, I didn't really like it. So, yeah. um, well, what I did like is, right, I mean, what upset me at the end of one was having your cyberpunk uh, anti-hero become Superman. I was like, I just, I don't get where we're going here, because why are we falling into a chosen one narrative? But then I love the idea that, well, there's lots of chosen ones, and the chosen ones are part of this other scheme, and they're chosen to actually be pawns. Like, I just sort of like how each movie kind of complicates what I think is an overly simple kind of narrative we see, frankly, all too often throughout, you know popular culture where it can get too flattened out. And I appreciated that. <laughs> yeah. Um, two quick points. Um, so David, to your point about the matrix within a matrix, that would have been super interesting, but you know what? I think they made the right choice, honestly, to not do that because do you remember the, another film that came out the same time, the third, the 13th floor? Yeah, yeah. Um, pretty cool movie where they did do that. Um, sorry, spoilers for a 23 year old, <laughs> but, um, the problem with that philosophically is once you do that, you can never prove that you're in the real world. Like there would be no way to conclusively ever end it on a happy note or you'd have to have them be OK with living in a simulation, um, which I think they didn't want to go down that particular rabbit hole. Um, to the point about Neo flying, that was one of the things I won't go far too into this yet, but I, I loved how the new movie made that such a point yes. and kind of made that. Um, so important thematically to the fourth film and made the first film even better. Yeah. Uh, I want to get Teresa back in here. So I forget, Teresa, did you say, how did you feel about the, the third movie? 
I really can barely remember anything about it. <laughs> Did not really get to rewatch it before this podcast, so I apologize for that. Um, I really remember being in the theater though, and everyone was very excited. It was, uh, the IMAX movie premiere in New York City, the biggest screen ever. People were dressed up. It was like a nightclub. People were in all their Matrix gear and glowing goggles and light sticks. And my friend was so excited. And then you get towards the ending of the movie when Trinity dies and her death scene was just so overwrought and bad. People started heckling. You know, she's like, you know, uh, what, Neo's like, you can't die. And someone else, and she says, yes, I can. And someone else in the theater just yelled out perfectly timed. So do it already. <laughs> and like, I remember that more than anything else in the movie. Oof. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to rip on the movie too much, but I, I agree with you that it's like, I find it literally forgettable. Like I, I literally don't remember a lot of what happens in it. And like, Going into this new movie where it sort of picks up some of the threads from the end of Matrix Revolutions, I, I was like, I just, I don't remember, like, what happened to the end again? I, I have, like, really vague memories of it. And the other, the the first two movies, I, I feel like I remember pretty much every detail. And granted, I saw the first, I, I, I rewatched the first one a lot of times. And I, I've probably rewatched the second one, I don't know, maybe four or five times. And then I've watched some of the action scenes over and over and over again. Same. Um. But um, but even like I, I generally remember movies, the the plots of movies really well, and so the fact that the the ending of the third movie just doesn't stick in my mind at all, I I, I think that that's an issue for the movie, um, and I don't think I'm alone in in sort of finding it sort of muddled at the end. Well, it's and interesting. I don't think it mattered for Resurrections that much. <laughs> no, go go ahead, Raph. Oh, uh, well, it's funny. You mentioned how Matrix was the new Star Wars in a sense. And I've often compared the first trilogy of films in the Matrix series to Star Wars in that, you know, A New Hope is perfect. It stands on its own. Empire Strikes Back is probably imperfect, but better in a lot of ways. And that's how I felt about Reloaded. And Revolutions was perhaps the lesser of the three, but still pretty damn good. And that's how I felt about Return of the Jedi. <laughs> so it followed a similar trajectory for me. So so what are the strengths of the third movie for you? Well, okay. Um, I would say when I think back to moments in my life where I was at the movies and I was just totally blown away, uh, one of them you already touched on, the architect scene. Um, I thought that was one of the best climaxes in any film I've ever seen. And I actually loved how Loki kind of did a riff on that, like the non-action climax. I don't know. That For me, that was really great. And just the moment he goes to that door really was just one of those moments where I was like, I had no idea what was coming next. And I loved that. Um, there was a similar that's moment. The, that's the second That's the second movie, though. What's the, yes. the, th the third movie? So in Revolutions, there was a moment when the Squiddies, the Sentinels, finally break through and you realize they're just completely screwed. And there doesn't seem to be any possible way for them to survive. And I remember my girlfriend at the time just grabbing my hand. We were just both kind of like, holy fuck. Sorry, I don't know if I can swear. Um, yeah, yeah, but, go ahead. Yeah, it was just one of those moments where like, I got goosebumps. I'm actually getting them now thinking about it because it's taking me back. But that was a singularly fantastic moment in, in a sci-fi action film. And then I just loved the sense of impending dread when the two ships go two separate directions with two different objectives. And you kind of knew Neo and Trinity were not coming back. And just that sense of dread, but also curiosity, was one of my favorite feelings in any movie I've ever seen. 
I mean, the thing that always, bug- I mean, the, that immediately bugs me when I saw it about the ending of the third movie is that it seems way too easy to make peace with the machines that, you know, that, that Neo basically, he makes this deal with them, like, I'll take care of Agent Smith in exchange for a peace treaty, essentially. And I thought that the setup, it seemed to me, was that the machines need the humans for energy. And so it seems like something that could not, like a piece that couldn't happen because if the if they're not using humans for batteries anymore, aren't they going to all aren't the machines going to all die? Oh and no, so they the, don't. They they explain that right because they have to mm-hmm. keep rebooting the Matrix. It has to do with that larger backstory. The Matrix is unstable, right? You're right. And so they have to sort of get the humans tuned right. And part of what they realize they need, and I know this is part like they flesh this out in like the games and some of the animated things, and that is they need Zion. They need to have a place essentially to put the human exiles. Right. right, to sort of keep the matrix going. Yeah, the architect touched on that specifically mm-hmm. when Neo kind of brought it up, uh, to your point, David, and, and he said there are levels of survival we're willing to accept. Yes. Okay, so they can, are they not using humans as batteries anymore after the peace treaty? Well, they are, but that's the whole thing in this. So at the end of Revolutions, we see the, the new iteration of the Matrix, the seventh version, and the colors palette is changed, and it's more hopeful. And basically, the architect says it'll be up to the people. They can leave if they want, but a lot of people will still choose to stay. That's kind of his overriding point, and we kind of saw that play out in part four. Okay. Yeah, I guess I would have to watch it again. But it, it, yeah. it so so but it did seem just sort of like wait, if it was possible to have this sort of mutually beneficial arrangement, why didn't we have this sooner? Or like why did it take I don't know, why why couldn't some um you know, accommodation have been reached already? I don't know. It it just seems, yeah, sort of like I said, a little too pat or too easy to me. <laughs> Well, the funny thing is, that's like a plot point that's kind of hounded the franchise from the get-go. And it wasn't even supposed to be a battery thing. But uh, apparently, back in the, when they were making the first film, they just needed human beings to essentially use their brains for a neural network that the machines could utilize. And uh, Warner Brothers said that was too complicated or something. Oh, that's interesting. Oh. I never knew that. So that's oh. how we end up with the human batteries? Yeah, exactly. That was their their next best idea, which they've kind of been trying to, (laughs) to your point, David, like it doesn't always make perfect sense, but they just did their best with it. But visually, it's gorgeous. It looks really cool. Well, well, people always um, criticize it saying it doesn't make scientifically, it doesn't make any sense, because how could you run a human body and get more energy out of it than you're putting in? That doesn't make any sense. But I've always sort of defended it on the grounds that it, it sort of makes metaphorical sense that in the in the Matrix, Neo has this job where he feels like the life is being sucked out of him, right. and then he awakens right. to this greater reality Absolutely. where that's literally, literally what's happening. Right. So, right. Plus, they cover their asses by saying, "coupled with a form of fusion." <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, so I don't know, Teresa. What do you? Is any of this uh, convincing you that the third movie is uh, any better than you, better than you thought? Well, you know, I'm a staunch supporter of Alien 3. So, (laughs) you know, so I have total empathy with the Matrix trilogy fans who feel, uh, you know, I'm willing to keep an open mind about re, reloaded, 
Revolutions. 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 Yes. I'm willing to keep an open mind about revolutions. And if I see it come up on TBS again, I will sit and watch it. Yeah. And I have like, maybe I should explain. I haven't seen any of these movies, at least this, the, all the way through the second and third one in at least 15 years, probably more. So anything I say about them should be, uh, right. you know, that should be taken into account. And I did enjoy the Animatrix a lot. Oh, yeah. Too. That was awesome. The Animatrix, Animatrix was, was totally amazing. I still teach it. My students still like it. They've not oh, seen God. the original movies, but they know the Animatrix somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, those are gorgeous. And yeah. God, like really set a wonderful model for other early 2000s science fiction franchises as well, because Pitch Black and Riddick had their animated movie as well, which was totally. really, really good. And the video games, which were like the best movie tie-in video games of all time. That was kind yeah. of the golden era of transmedia. Yeah, like all of a sudden, yeah. 2003, 2004, they're putting out these straight-to-video animated features to support the upcoming movie and then like, you know, short films and games. We had, we didn't really see that again until Blade Runner 2049 when they were kind of supplementing it with cartoons and short films and things. But but that's striking to me, Lisa, that so college students today grow up not watching The Matrix. No, it's really funny. I'll show the Animatrix movies, which, again, some of them have somehow seen parts of them online, but they don't really know their original Matrix movies. It's funny. I I, I, I was shocked. I hadn't realized that. And I'm like, oh, well, go read the plot summary then, I guess, before we do this class. But yeah. Yeah, that really shocks me. I mean, because it was, as I said, it was just so culturally ubiquitous uh you know it really was i know yeah and yeah. so i i don't know what they're watching instead um yeah <laughs> <laughs> well there's i'm sure some trilogy that really has captured like right different generations hearts and minds like this but i don't know what it is well i would say you know maybe the appeal of the animatrix is because anime and oh, 100%. Anime culture is just yep. so popular yeah. now like more popular i think when you know than when i was coming up yep um but I know for me, like, you know, just like a little mini capsule, like the scene in the first Matrix where Neo and Trinity walk through security and it turns into this huge gun battle. Yeah. That used to be the scene that I would test out a new soundbar on, you know, and make sure everything was all calibrated right. <laughs> and then we got like Return of the King and the Battle of Pelennor Fields. <laughs> so then that was it. Like I hadn't seen the Matrix for a really long time. Because I would always be using Lord of the Rings to test out my sound. So, you know, I don't know, like hmm. other cultural juggernauts come up, you know. Very much so. I think for kids right. that are in college now, the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Harry Potter films, uh, yeah. those were kind of the yeah. main films that really, you know, they grew up on. Hmm. So, uh, so, so, Lisa, what were your expectations going into Matrix Resurrections? Um, and that is the fourth one. I know I'm getting all the titles mixed up again. Right? I'm like, wait, which one are we talking about? You know what? I went in with zero expectations, um, because I thought that would probably be the most fun way to watch it. And, um, and it was, so I really had a great time. Uh, I, I had some concerns going in and I, I was relieved that a lot of them were alleviated actually. Um, well, I, what, what were your concerns? Um, I don't know what my concerns were actually. What were my concerns? Actually, I, you know what? I'm kidding. I didn't have any concerns. I'd say I really went in with no expectations and I just sort of enjoyed it. I thought, um, was it as groundbreaking as one? Well, no, but how could it be? Because it's like the fourth in a series. Do you know what I mean? So 
but I also thought it really did honor to the series. Um, the story was sort of logical. And, you know, since day one, the Wachowskis have insisted that those movies are really about love. And I thought, boy, they doubled down on that this time and really made it, mm. or, you know, um, Lana Wachowski did, really made it about love. And uh, I think that that's interesting. And I think that it almost makes me want to go back and rewatch the three original ones sort of through this different frame, like not thinking about, is it a metaphor for capitalism? Is it a metaphor for transness? Is it a metaphor for our media saturated society? Like may maybe it's just a science fiction story about love. Like, mm -hmm. okay, can we, can we get a great. <laughs> can we get a ruling? Cause I, I remember looking it up in the past and I thought it was pronounced Wachowski. Is, does anyone no, for sure. Oh, does anyone know? I could be saying it wrong. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I think it's Wachowski. Wachowski. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, I mean, I definitely had concerns going into this. Like I said, I didn't like the ending of the third one that much, and so I wasn't convinced that there needed to be a fourth one. And also, I mean, how often is the fourth movie in a science fiction action franchise that good? Right. I mean, it's kind of hard for me to think of too many. Example, you know, I mean, it seems like all the, all these kind of series, whether it's Aliens or Terminator or, or anything, they kind of, you know, there's a point of diminishing returns around the second or third movie. Right. Um, and also, I mean, by the time I saw it, you know, I was on sort of vacation for the last month. So by the time I saw <laughs> it, I had already seen a lot of the, the responses. Huh. Um, and the responses among my friends seem to pretty much fall into the camps of it's like, it's like not good. Or, uh, I'm not sorry I watched it, but it's not going to blow you away. So, so my expectations were kind of, were pretty low by the time I got around to actually watching it. Um, how about Raphael? Kind of what were your expectations going into, into this fourth movie? Well, it's funny. My expectations and emotional journey were probably the exact opposite of Lisa's um, because I'm such a huge fan of the entire trilogy. And my girlfriend and I did a rewatch with the Animatrix and I was just going in with sky high expectations, but also just dreading a bad movie because it would, you know, essentially ruin what was already a perfect trilogy for me. Um, I actually didn't care for the film that much as I was watching it in theaters. And I think the thing with the movie um is that the pacing issue, it's got some pacing issues. Uh, I actually think it should have been a TV series. I think like her sensibilities coming out of Sensate probably informed this movie a bit, and I would have liked to have seen a series instead of yeah. a movie. That makes it, sense, it, it, yes. It felt yeah. like a TV yes. show. Like, am, am I... Dude, does everyone agree with that, that it kind of felt like a TV show? There were so many like, plot yes. lines, and I wanted to yeah. find out so much more about the world. Right. That was and my it, big complaint. I wanted more. Yeah. Yeah, it basically gave you a taste of a lot of things, but not enough of any one thing. And I, it left me wanting a lot more, even though I liked the conclusion of the story. I don't want more films. I just wanted more of this two and a half hours, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, but yeah, you know, I have actually watched the film six times. And I think like it requires a lot of watching and rewatching and study to really appreciate how much she accomplished. Because metatextually and just narratively, it's kind of an amazing coda to the original trilogy. So. Ultimately, I do like it a lot with some conflicted feelings about the execution. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, I mean, um, do, you, do you know, Roth, what, from a Hollywood business perspective, like, is there, what's the story behind how this movie came about? Because I've heard different things. Oh, sure. Um, 
Um, well, that's one of the best lines of dialogue in the movie is when uh, Keanu Reeves' boss tells him that essentially Warner Brothers is going to make a fourth one with or without them because that's exactly what the real life story was. A few years ago, Zach Stentz was developing a fourth film because um, the Wachowskis... I think it was, was it Zach? Zach Penn? Oh, sorry. Yeah, probably wrong, Zach. But... Um, yeah, Warner Brothers wanted to move forward with or without them. And at the time, they weren't that interested. But uh, Lana said that after she experienced the personal loss of her parents, she finally kind of uh, was coming from a place where it gave her the inspiration to make this story. And I thought that was really interesting. So I'm glad she was the one who got to end it the way she wanted, and not let someone else undermine it or cheapen it. You know, it's interesting. I heard that same story. And then I also heard that um, Lily decided not to do it for the exact same reason that Lana had decided to do it. It was like right at their parents' death. And she, she was just like, oh, wrong time for all of this. No. So right. I think that's kind of cool. And that's part of why there's only one sibling working on this one. Right. Yeah. The thing I the thing I read was that Lana said, you know, that she had this dream or something or she started, like woke up one night with this vision of the movie in her head and, mm-hmm. and, and saw like, you know, my our parents will never live again. But but Trinity and Neo could live again and could be kind of, you know, parent parental figures that that we could give life to. And I thought that was that was a, actually a really interesting, you know, um, uh, uh, origin point for this movie. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I read um, that as well. Yeah. Very personal, right? It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and this is a, an interestingly personal movie in a lot of ways. I thought so too. And I I actually thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean Yeah. Yeah, let's definitely get into that. I do I want to ask Teresa though, um, kind of what were your just initial impressions of the movie uh, as you were watching it? Um, initial well, all right, going into it, I didn't really have any expectations except it's been a shitty two years and I want to watch something fun. Yes. Um, any opportunity to see Keanu Reeves in his older age, which is like a you know, his fine wine self, <laughs> uh getting to bust out more action moves, I will be there for that. Um and Carrie Ann Moss has been kind of under the radar for me for a little bit. I, I can't remember seeing her in anything too recently after Jessica Jones, maybe. Um, yeah. So like very modest expectations of this film, but I have to say it, w- it was fun. It was what I expected of a new matrix film, you know, and that it didn't blow me away with anything new and jaw dropping, but it was satisfying. I felt overall pretty satisfied by it, and I enjoyed the fun bouts of uh, revisiting the first movie, especially in the first half. And I liked a lot of the performances. I thought the cast did a very good job. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I did find this a surprising movie, and this was not what I was expecting in a lot of ways because I felt like you know the Matrix series has been so such an action martial arts, you know, gun battles kind of franchise. And I felt that the action in this was, you know, not that exciting and sort of, um, you know, perfunctory. And I thought that the the relationship between Neo and Trinity was much more the focus of this this movie. And 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 that the, and that worked really well for me. I thought that the uh, I found it really emotionally affecting seeing these characters. Uh, yeah. So I guess instead of maybe saying no surprises, it was more like 
there was nothing there like bullet time, like conceptually, special effects yeah. wise that like reinvented anything new. But yes, I agree. Like emotionally, I was invested in these characters yes. and that was exciting to me. Like that's what made me enjoy the movie. And, you know, I was probably Neo's age in the first movie and now, you know, or closer to it. And now I'm closer to, to his age now, you know, so it becomes this, I, I, that resonated with me, like the aging and I, the passage of time. And props to Reeves and Moss for like resisting the Botox, you know, they looked mm -hmm. like oh, hell yeah. humans. I mean, they are gorgeous humans, but they <laughs> look like humans in their forties and fifties. Like you yeah. should look, it was kind of amazing. Now if they could just let people that age also have gray hair, which they sometimes <laughs> do, right? You know, David, I think you nailed it that this film for Lana was not about action, but it was about the love story and the human characters. Um, and I think they really kind of did that in a subtly genius way with those scenes in the development room when the game developers are talking about, you know, what makes the matrix, the matrix. And even though those are kind of over the top, it kind of sets the table for reducing your expectations because they're not going to try and blow you away with, you know, brand new action sequences because they can't outdo the first three. So this is not a story about action at all. The action is kind of just there to help the story happen, but it's really much more about the characters and the drama, I think. Yeah, and let me just set up what the movie's about in case anyone listening to this hasn't watched it. So so basically, you know, um, Neo and Trinity, I'm not going to, I'm going to assume you've at least seen the first uh, movie, <laughs> but, but, but Neo and Trinity have been like stuck back in a new version of the Matrix and they don't know that they're in the Matrix. And Neo is now, he's been like recreated as Thomas Anderson, genius video game designer who created a video game called The Matrix that's been super popular. And now he's being pressured by Warner Brothers to create a sequel that he doesn't want to make. And, um, and it's sort of given and is sort of surrounded by all these kind of like, um, video game tech bro type people with all these, uh, kind of, you know, airhead ideas about what what the game should be and so it's yeah it's super um yeah super meta and super like fourth wall breaking and and all this stuff and um and and initially i had a little trouble or i had trouble you know it was sort of kicking me out of the story a little bit all the kind of winks and nods at the audience but as as it went on and particular particularly as i watched it a second time i could see more and more like how personal a project this was uh, for for Alana Wachowski and how how many of her obviously very personal concerns get expressed in this movie, um, but wait I have like so so some of the thing I, I wrote down some of the things that people oh so so there's sort of this converse there's sort of this montage I think maybe Lisa might have mentioned this where where people are saying stuff like the Matrix is about trans politics crypto fascism it's a metaphor of capitalist exploitation, um, as I said earlier. As I said earlier, the capitalist exploitation thing seems to me very true. I mean, you know. Well, I think all uh, those things are true, right? Like that's yeah. kind of the thing. They're they're all there. Right. Mm -hmm. But then you also have people saying like, oh, it's should it's about I guess all this stuff is kind of true. It's about guns and blasting stuff and I don't know. So but but so yeah, I guess Lisa, how how are we supposed to feel about all the people making saying it's about trans politics, it's about crypto fascism, capitalist capitalism etc right well don't i think that the movie makes it pretty clear right there there these are all agents and bots so right there um i think that that's kind of interesting mm -hmm. um who are 
having that conversation. Um, I, I mean, I, because I do think the movie's about all those things. And so I think it's sort of funny that they're throwing them all out and then saying, of course, though, but that's not really what the matrix is about because it both is and isn't right. That, that is and isn't true. And um, I, I like that. It doesn't, I think it just sort of that whole opening, the, all the opening scenes, they're so meta and it's so dizzying, right. All the different sort of levels of postmodern joking there. Um, I think we're supposed to feel uh, dizzied and confused and maybe impressed with, with the, all the sort of play that's going on there. Um, but, you know, I mean, one thing I was thinking about is there is a trend right in modern movies to do this sometimes, like to sort of acknowledge the sort of meta-ness of your own universe or whatever. And um, but I, I thought The Matrix did it much more stylishly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and much more organically, like it actually yes. made sense to the yes. story, which is what was so yeah. great about it. And to, and to your point, David, you, know, you kind of wanted extra levels of The Matrix in part three. Well, spiritually, that's what this movie does, basically. I mean, because yeah. in the original trilogy, uh, Morpheus references uh, Jean Baudrillard. And the philosopher had to say about The Matrix itself that it was the kind of film that The Matrix would make if The Matrix existed um, to essentially pull the wool <laughs> over our eyes. And that's kind of exactly the whole storyline of Resurrections. I mean, I thought it was kind of great having him plugged back in, but thinking it had all been a dream. So I, in a way, you did kind of get what you had always wanted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, wh why do you think that they made it a video game, the Matrix a video game rather than a movie in this new Matrix? Well, I think because if they made it a movie, it would be way too meta. <laughs> so <laughs> it might they needed another. Yeah, they needed another kind of media that's very um, widely maligned or trivialized. Yeah. I also wonder if that's not a way to capture younger audiences like my students who haven't seen the movies, because uh, I know from talking to them, some of them have played the Matrix video games. So right. I wonder if that's not a way of drawing in some younger. I'll have to ask my students when I see them next week. I'm curious how they how they read that. Well, well I also think it's a way to kind of make Neo um, a soulless tech bro like this is, you know, in right. the first movie, he was, you know, the, the faceless cube monkey you right. know and now yeah. he's the the ceo old man of the silicon valley cool gaming company totally and it gave them the entry point to if he's a coder and running a, a modal in the background of you know he essentially it's it fits within the story but if he's just a screenwriter a filmmaker or something then how the hell would he be able to create a computer pro you know it doesn't really work yeah that's like, how that's really his horrible, <laughs> i just had this horrible horrible crossover idea of neo in the matrix resurrections but also jp and grandma's boy whose whole character was like <laughs> obsessed with the matrix does my music scare you trinity Sorry. <laughs> but, you know, also video games, I think, for kids that grew up in the last 20 years are more important culturally than movies. And that's oh, kind totally. of like that might sound. Yeah. I mean, I've gotten to know a lot of my relatives that are younger than 23 and um, they just don't care about movies in the same way that we did growing up. It's just not on their radar. But video games are. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I yeah, the, the video games are sort of culturally ascendant in a way that feature films aren't and also that i mean that sort of gaming culture i think reflects some um i don't know so, so it's a culture that sort of the wachowskis probably have issues with i mean there's this whole thing i have the 
I have the tweet somewhere, but but there was this thing basically that happened a couple of years ago where Elon Musk tweeted, uh, take the red pill. And then right. Ivanka Trump tweeted, mm-hmm. uh, I took it or taken or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And then Lily Wachowski tweeted, fuck you both, fuck both of you or something <laughs> right. like that. Yeah. yeah. And, and so like clearly there's this sort of like really ambivalent relationship they have with some segment of their fans or, yeah. Yeah. or some way that their ideas have been well, um, assimilated in, in the culture. Well, yeah. it is ironic, right? Like it's the alt-right that uses red pilling as mm-hmm. as a verb and to talk about their experience of waking to whatever reality oh. they've woken to and it does seem ironic to take that w- concept from like two trans women doesn't it just putting that yeah out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 absolutely but- <laughs> for sure and you know maybe by addressing it so explicitly in the movie in a certain way it's like okay we're going to make sure this is not going to be co-opted here exactly like, mm, Th- here this was her exactly. taking it back yes yeah. this is so much of this is about her taking control, like artistic control, mm-hmm. like a narrative control. Yeah. Yeah. And you On know, that also, level, the movie really works. Yeah. You know, video games also are much more active activity because movie watching is pretty passive and it's better metaphorically for the Matrix. I mean, we're stuck in a game, basically, if we're stuck in the Matrix, because the analyst even says the harder and more suffering I implemented, the more energy y'all produce. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. But 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 yeah. Um, I also just want to mention this line where, okay, so in the um, in in this matrix where Neo and Trinity don't know who they really are, uh, they they're in this coffee shop and they have this conversation where Trinity says, "So what's it like being a world famous game designer? It must be amazing. You made the Matrix. Even I've heard of that." And Neo says, "Yeah, we kept some kids entertained, um, but like clearly doesn't you know." I, I feel like this, I, I really felt, I felt for him in this moment. I feel like this is clearly Lana Wachowski saying, you know, like, you can create something that is so popular and is so loved by so many people, but that doesn't make your problems, all your, the problems in your life magically go away. No, but and then there's that beautiful next line when Carrie Ann Moss says, so worth it, right? Yeah. I thought that was great. Because he tries to brush it off, and she's like, no, it is important. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I didn't okay. mean to derail you. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I so, 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 so she, wait, sorry, remind me what, what she says. So, so, ne- so Neo says, yeah, we, we, we entertained a few kids, right? Or, or the Anderson character does. And she grabs his hand and says, so worth it, right? And she's speaking as a mom about the value of what she sees, how her kids love those games. And I thought mm-hmm. that was kind of a beautiful moment to... But it's a moment that both sort of right dismisses sort of the importance of these films, but also sort of acknowledges that there are fans for whom this stuff means a lot. Yeah. I thought it was sweet. You know what was so great about that scene, too, is if there's one failing of the original trilogy, it's that we kind of just have to accept that Trinity and Neo love each other without much buildup. Um, and this film kind of retroactively gives us that you know, their flirtation and getting to know each other and just like that sexual chemistry, even if it's a little bit after the fact, but it kind of retroactively helps that. I think the love storyline better, you know, just seeing them in such a mundane setting, just talking like two normal people. It didn't even feel like a sci-fi movie. I love that. I also think it's one of my favorite things about that whole storyline is Trinity's husband is named Chad. (laughs) 
I didn't catch that. That's so good. Thank you. How perfect. How perfect. Well, even better, that's Chad Stahelski. Um, the the guy who directed John Wick movies and was the stunt choreography in The Matrix. Oh, no way. I didn't know that at all. Yeah. I was like, oh, Chad. Yeah, yeah Lana asked you, him to, to basically come in and do that. Oh, my God. That works even better. <laughs> especially That's fantastic. Giving, you know, when we get to later on and what happens with Trinity's character. <laughs> yeah. Even better. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you, do you want to just explain, Teresa, if people don't know, what what's the significance of the Chad thing? All right. From... What I understand of the, the Chad thing, it kind of all goes into like the red pill thing and stuff too. It's, you know, incel talk of, you know, Chad is like the perfect, bland, kind of idealized man. I think that's what I understand a Chad to be like head football yeah. player, lead jock, whatever. So the fact that, you know, Trinity and her name has been changed to Tiffany, which sounds very like twee and cute. No offense to people named Tiffany. You have no control over that. But, you know, this is a construct and it's a way to imprison Trinity and Neo in this Matrix existence. So giving her this mundane existence where her name is Tiffany and she's married to boring, bland Chad and has the two, like you could just kind of picture what her house must be like. You know, except it doesn't have a coffee machine in it, I guess, because she's always getting coffee. <laughs> this is totally random, but one of my producing colleagues, his name is Chad, and his girlfriend for the longest time was Tiffany. It's just kind of funny. <laughs> Can't make this stuff up. <laughs> um. So what does everyone think of of the plot? Like, were you uh, happy with the, the way the plot developed? I mean, so, so basically the plot is that Neo... Uh, you know, he has this this therapist who's sort of trying to convince him that he's, you know, that all this stuff that is is always in his imagination, all this stuff about, you know, the Matrix maybe being real and everything. And he eventually manages to get himself unplugged from the Matrix. And in the process, as he's being extracted from this, this pod and this sort of dystopian hellscape, uh, or post-apocalyptic hellscape, he sees that Trinity is still imprisoned. And he goes back to, or he goes to io which is a, a zion type human uh hidden city and then undertakes this sort of heist mission to rescue trinity and that's more or less that's sort of the plot of the the movie so um so Teresa, what do you think of did you find that a satisfying plot or what did you think of that as the plot for the fourth matrix movie yeah i mean i i thought it was again enjoyable um it did just you know overall the, the plot did seem weirdly paced and structured. Like it was very heavy in the beginning on getting us to Neo rediscovering himself. And then it became about Trinity and rescuing Trinity and the larger fate of the matrix. I I agree. I think, you know, I didn't think of it before, but I think if it had been a TV show and kind of structured that way would have been a little more satisfying. Um, Absolutely. Can I build on that real quick? Yeah, please do. Because I notice it's shared a lot in common with WandaVision, if you've seen that. Uh, the first oh, three episodes yeah. of that show are basically yeah, yeah, yeah. not really yes. the show. Right. Um, and I think this would have benefited from the very similar structure because I did a deep dive on this. In the first film, Neo's unplugged from the Matrix in the 32nd minute. And that marks the end of Act 1 and start of Act 2. Like I said, that first script is airtight. 
Um, this one, he doesn't wake up in the real world to the 52nd minute. And that's just way too long. Like, cause essentially that's when the act two starts, when they finally go to IO and all that stuff. And I think a lot of the audience, you're not really necessarily aware of these screenwriting rules consciously, but you start to check out of a movie when things aren't progressing fast enough. And it's no coincidence this film was 20 minutes longer than the others because it took too long to get to that point. So, yeah, I I just wish it had been a six episode, four or five hour thing. Yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, um, why why do you think... why do you think that they didn't do it as a six episode miniseries or something? You know, to be honest, the way they had so much success with Zack Snyder's Justice League on HBO Max, I'm kind of shocked that they didn't. Um, I think it would have been really beneficial for everyone. Uh, they probably just kind of thought, hey, you know, this would be a great movie to put out because they have to make some movies. <laughs> you know, can't all be TV <laughs> shows. <laughs> yeah. There were so many storylines and it, it just feels it really would have. I, now that you've said that, I, I so want the TV series because I just every like every 10 minutes, I was like, "Ooh, there's another plot line gone that I'd like to hear more about. And uh, how did IO become IO? Right. And right. Uh, why did the young people of IO care about Neo? Because it seems like IO's a lot nicer than Zion. Like they're living pretty well. Mm-hmm. And um you know, and, and I just wanted to know more about why anyone cared about Neo anymore. And um, absolutely. Yeah. Like you know. Lexi and Berg and those are, and Seek. Those are some cool yeah. characters. I wanted yeah. to know more about them. I'll give you a specific example of where I could tell they were rushing through the story and could use more time. Neo is imprisoned and liberated within 10 seconds. That should have <laughs> yeah. like literally like they lock him up and they free him continuously there's no scenes in between and that if anything really needed some time to develop i I had read that there was going to be a tv series about bugs that would make sense but now it's on hold or something Mm. like that Mm. i'm not sure what they're it's in development limbo right now well i i because this this underperformed this this fourth movie underperformed at the box office and i think that that kind of put yeah but see, it did do great projects. on HBO Max. It did um, like 3 million views the first week, uh, which was as much as Suicide Squad. Oh, I was part of that. Yeah. Me I too. I watched it at home. I, me too. There's really not much. You know, I was also on, you know, a bit of travel. But, you know, there are not many movies that I would risk going to a theater right now during another wave of this Right. You know, yeah. COVID, you know, yeah. that that had to affect it. Everything was shutting down at, like right on that day. Well, and everyone that was going to the movies that week was going to see Spider-Man. I mean, that like <laughs> yeah. literally like that made one point well, five billion and counting. Right. And apparently this movie was massively pirated that more people mm. watched it pirated than watch Spider-Man pirated. Well, so that seems appropriate, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does. <laughs> But but I mean I'm just saying as this is my understanding just as a matter of fact the fact that it didn't make money mm-hmm. or you know didn't make as much money as they wanted it to is why some of the other Matrixy projects are sort of in limbo right now. Yeah, I bet you on some level Lana's relieved because, you know, honestly, I I know some people were hoping this would kickstart a new trilogy and that would be cool. I'm sure I would like it. But I really thought this was a perfect coda, like the perfect coda I never knew I wanted. I don't need any more than this. Although now I want to go and watch Sense8. I haven't watched it before. Yeah. Oh, Sense8's terrific. I mean, I only watched the first season, but the first season I thought was terrific. Um, And yeah, I agree that I liked the ending of this. I mean, um, 
I think it's the ending of this is going to stick in my memory in a way that the ending of uh, Matrix Revolutions didn't. Um, well, because you know, it's I more got... it's more triumphant. I mean, it was bold to end the third film with kind of a tie. You know, I like neither so. neither side wins, and that's really artistically interesting. Yeah. But it's not as triumphant or memorable. No. Yeah, I guess I'll just explain. So, so what happens at the end is that uh, it turns out that Neo's analyst is, or his, you know, his therapist is is really a, a sort of evil AI who's running this new matrix, and um, Neo and Trinity, sort of, I, I guess, like the the analyst, this character, he explains that he has to keep the two of them within proximity to each other, but not let them interact too much to maximize the performance of this matrix. And so eventually they, they team up and remember who they are and, and break out of this confinement and uh, sort of give him his comeuppance. And so the movie ends with the, the two of them having, you know, both achieved sort of Superman status and sort of soaring through the sky together on their way <laughs> to, to remake the, this new matrix, however they want. Um, was that Lisa? Do you want to say something? Um, no, that sounds right. I mean, I, I'd make the important point that Trinity is the one who's flying. Um, you know, there's, there's yes. right. They, they all through the film, they keep like, Neil, have you gotten your power of flight yet back? And he, and, and he doesn't. Trinity gets it back. I agree at the very end. It seems like maybe he's flying under his own power too, but it's unclear. I thought, I thought she was still holding his hand and taking oh. him through the sky, but I'm not positive. Maybe they both had it by the end. They were definitely both flying by the end, yeah. Okay, that's what I thought when I rewatched it today. That's what it looked like. I think maybe I was just more hopeful the first time that she got to and the it's, one who keeps the power. It's kind of interesting how uh, Lana shot that because we see Trinity fly in to, to visit the analyst for that final scene, and Neo yes. is just kind of there. So it is a reveal at the very, very end that's easy yes. to miss that they're both flying together because she didn't yeah. want to show that yet. I actually like the way they do that, the way they kind of sneak up on the analyst like that. I thought that was great. Um, and it does make sense to have them both flying at the end. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like that's the right. satisfying ending. Because now they're both the one, which I thought was really right. clever screenwriting that yes. the, an the analyst matrix was based on both their source codes. So it took both of them this time. I just love that MPH was the analyst. I thought he did a wonderful job. <laughs> He's the best mad um, scientist always, right? Ab absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, you know, the, from the moment he he's on screen with those blue, blue glasses, you're like, okay, he's the Matrix. He is the establishment. He's the bad guy. And then, you know, uh, Priya, the, the Jonas Brothers wife lady with the red glasses, you know, oh, she's on their side. Okay. I get it. <laughs> I like it. The very significant eyewear. In this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it was all sunglasses in the first movie, right? But right. now all those 20 and 30 somethings are like many of us in their 40s and 50s and wearing reading glasses and things, right? <laughs> so glasses suddenly are cooler almost than sunglasses. Although in the end, they put the sunglasses back on. So, of course. Yeah. The, the costume design in this <sighs> movie, and, you know, I don't want to get like too off track, but it's, it's something where it's like, okay, look, I'm not looking at, you know, all the special effects and bullet time, whatever. I'm, I'm looking at like the conscious outfit choices and, you know, all the cool leather and fetish gear that's bugs and like her generation and like those kids of IO. Then you've got Trinity and Mio when they're older and they're still stylish, but it's still not like 
hyper stylish like you know john wick is mm-hmm. and then you have the actor who's playing new morpheus and like he's the one who really really gets the shine with his outfit choices <laughs> and his conscious decision and control over how he looks i thought that actor was amazing yeah uh, his performance was amazing and, and morpheus as a whole i think was this like a real standout in this movie absolutely yeah. i mean i i find I find it sort of disorienting having different actors playing the characters. And I felt like like Morpheus and um and Agent Smith, they didn't they obviously weren't doing impressions of um Lawrence Fishburne and uh Hugo Weaving. Um so I guess I'm just curious what do people think about about that? Like did did they seem enough like like the characters that you that you could identify or that you could, um, you know, that they seems like the same person in a different body. Um, I think for Morpheus, definitely, mm-hmm. you know, and, and not just because of the shaved head and the general cool and the style, it was the dialogue. Um, the, the story beats it. It felt authentic when, you know, that, that moment of like sheer joy when it's like, okay, how are we going to get Neo back? And I agree as Raphael said, like it took too long. Uh, but when they get to the point where it's like, uh, Morpheus says, I know what you need to feel like yourself again. And then you get this ama- amazing, beautiful dojo in the middle of the lake and the Kung Fu and the Wuxia. I'm like, yes, that is Morpheus. And that is the joy that he kind of represents and, and the teacher relationship. I thought it was wonderful. Uh, Agent Smith, maybe not as much for me, that to me felt a little forced, but I really love that actor. I liked him playing an FBI agent on Mindhunter. And how can you just not like that actor? I wish he got to sing like he did in <laughs> Hamilton. That just would have made it even better. You know, it's funny. I wasn't familiar with him at all until this film. And then last night uh, I was watching the Sex and the City revival <laughs> and he popped up there and all of a sudden I'm like, Smith. <laughs> Cause, cause Wait, he, what episode so is he good. in? Because I've just started watching that, so I must not have seen it yet. How oh, he's he's in the very latest one that came out this week. He, he ah, plays okay. A nope, I haven't seen it yet. All right, how funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah and he good. has such great delivery and uh, the way he speaks. I don't know. You know, for me, David, um, I did find some of it disorienting at first. And even with Neil Patrick Harris, as much as I like him, he was such a departure from the architect that, I found it all a little odd on that first viewing, but after repeated viewings, yeah, it's really won me over significantly. What do people make? I mean, obviously, one of the most distinctive um, aspects of Agent Smith is that he calls Neo Mr. Anderson, and then in this, he calls him Tom, and that's obviously intentional, but I'm just wondering why do you think that they made that shift? Well, I think it's, you know, it has to do, you know, keeping like, Battlestar Galactica, all these other things, you know, all of this has happened before and will happen again, just slightly tweaked each time. Yeah. I also thought, right, I mean, this again, it's part of the way this whole movie is more personal, right? Like they have this more personal relationship in some ways. And it it is true, right? I mean, Smith at least recognizes that he kind of depended on something happening to Neo to free him. Like there's there's a different relationship there. And so I sort of thought it made sense. He called him Tom. Okay, so 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 you think it's like a sign of their growing 
intimacy or something that he well, yeah, of their change, right? They're not they're not exactly on opposite sides anymore because right that's the whole point of this movie. It's not exactly us versus them that it's always more complicated than that. And I thought that that yeah, that we were getting that intimacy there. That yeah. complication. I mean I, I was wondering I was wondering if it was more of like a commentary on like the tech bro kind of thing where they like yeah, MySpace like they're your act like they're your buddy but it's it's like it's still the same sort of corporate BS but but it has this sort of like uh, affect of of this is your family and these are your friends and everything. Yeah, I mean, I think it works on that level too, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know, I mean, there was very a lot much of meta commentary on that in here. Yeah, I mean, very much on that line of thinking. It literally did make me think of MySpace, Tom. Just you know, because that was so <laughs> huge at the time of the Matrixes when they came out. Matrices. <laughs> Gee, so another choice in the Matrix that operates at multiple levels. Say it ain't so. <laughs> yeah. And, that makes sense. That's what's so interesting to me about these films is that they're not just one thing. They work on so many levels. Mm-hmm. You can't really reduce it to just, I mean, it, it's a trans allegory, the anti-capitalist thing, the love story. You know, I've seen a lot of people talking about how this fourth one essentially tries to deconstruct the previous ones. And that's true to mm-hmm. a degree too. Um, I've even seen some people say the action was bad on purpose. And I don't think that's true. I mean, I think that's an overstatement. I think it wasn't the focus because they were never going to outdo it and they didn't want to. Um, but, you know, I think it was a whole lot of things at once and it pulled off almost all of it. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of felt like the first time I watched it, you know, I sort of went back and forth between thinking like, oh, this is like not that great. And then like, oh, I really like the relationship between Neo and Trinity. It's really affecting me emotionally. And then I watched, I, you know, I, I sort of I rewatched it again and, or, you know, I watched it again and then I I liked it a lot more the second time. I mean, I still, um, it, it, but it, it's, hard. I wouldn't like recommend, you know, I wouldn't like say to someone, oh, you have to see it. Like, I feel like it's, it's sort of like if you're a Matrix fan and you want to see these characters, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't discourage you from seeing it, but I feel like I, I, I don't know. There's just something like, it's not like a crowd pleaser in the way that the other ones are. It's sort of, it is more of a sort of like artistic project. It feels like to me, exactly. Um, where if you can, you know, you need to sort of be invested in some, some of Lana Wachowski's, um, you know, sort of personal concerns and like yes. how she feels about the place of the matrix and the broader culture and stuff like that. Yeah. I definitely think it was secondary uh, for Lana that people actually liked the movie right away. I don't think she cares. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know? no. Uh, and, and that's kind of the subtle genius of it. I think it's going to become really appreciated over time, but not soon enough that they're going to make her make more movies. So, so maybe that's wins. the perfect solution, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I- uh, go ahead, Teresa. Oh. Yeah, it's good. You know, yeah, this may not be a mass appeal movie, but I think it, because the personal elements of it are so genuine, it could be really affecting for a lot of people. And there were a lot of lines in here that really stopped and made me think, or you could identify with them. You know, a lot of what Bugs was saying was about, uh, you know, binary being very limiting. Like a lot of this was anti-binary. And I think that's where, you know, you could see a lot of people saying it's a story about transness. And of course Mm -hmm. that is definitely a a way to read it. It, It's in there, you know, and I'll just want to point people to uh, 
an article about this on Tor.com from Emmett Asher Perrin. Highly recommend people read it to get that kind of a perspective on uh, Matrix Resurrections as a trans love story. I've read that article. It's a great article. Yes. Totally second yeah. that. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. People should read that and, and see it. But, you know, it's, it's funny, like reading that article, but then thinking about the movie for, for me from like a cis female perspective watching Trinity, a lot of those similar lines got me in the gut too from a different perspective, you know, particularly, you know, talking about binary choices, but a lot of it for me was about aging mm -hmm. and how you're allowed to age and disappointments that happen in life and career. You know, this is like the midlife crisis movie where we're <laughs> all very invested in watching these very attractive 50 year olds hook up, right. You know, and get another shot at it. But you know, Trinity in particular really got to me, you know, when she's talking to Neo in the coffee shop about, you know, how she still loves motorcycles and, you know, it's like her own private little thing. Like the Matrix just gave her just enough of her real self to kind of keep her from going into a spiral and not going along with it. Uh, but then when she's saying, you know, to her husband, you know, talking to him about the Matrix game, like, oh, I think this character Trinity looks like me, don't you think? And Chad, stupid Chad, laughs at her. <laughs> and she's like, the saddest part to me is when she said, and I laugh too, because how could it not be, you know? But then I wanted to, you know, hit him so hard, you know? And then you see this moment where it had been doing it all throughout the movie very subtly and I missed it like the first time where I, I turned to my husband and be like, did I just see like that reflection doesn't ma match. Yeah. That's not their reflection. And Trinity doesn't look like mm -hmm. Trinity to her husband or anybody else. But I do think that Neo and Trinity see the real selves there mm -hmm. and everyone else around them can't see them like that. And that's why Bug saw the real Neo. Trinity could see the real Neo. Totally. And I think it just made it that much more uh, validating for them. Like their secret selves, somebody sees them. And that could have a lot of meaning for, you know, a lot of different types of people yes. who, who feel marginalized by their gender identity, their sexuality, their age. And I think it really works in this. And it, it, it made this movie more resonant than I was expecting it to be going in. Yeah. I also just want to point out, I mean, that the Trinity is sort of a classic example, along with Princess Leia in the original Star Wars trilogy of a female character who starts out really like badass and spunky and, and everything. And then sort of like drifts into just sort of fulfilling the expected female character role throughout the movies. And, and I think I felt, that's why I didn't like the third movie as much. It just kept going on that trajectory. Yeah. And so I, I think this is probably yeah. really intentionally trying to correct that. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's something that I've seen a, a feminist film critic, and I can't remember her name now, uh, but a popular one, you might be able to find her online. She calls it the Trinity principle, this whole idea that for the last 50 years, especially in science fiction movies, we get these sidekicks who are these awesome women who are actually much more awesome than the kind of average middling guy who ends up having being the hero. And yet somehow they're still always the sidekick to the hero, right? And and I like that this movie kind of corrects that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I was on the Geek's Guide book club for Neuromancer. And, you know, it was hard not to think of when you first see Trinity, you're like, oh, that's Molly Millions. Yep. She's way cooler than Johnny Mnemonic. Yep. She needs her own movie. And this is like kind of close to that movie. That's that a good point. Yeah, I did the Snow Crash panel and uh, same thing, <laughs> right? Because YT is so much more interesting than Hero, at least to me. <laughs> I also just, I mean, you mentioned, um, Teresa, the, the Emmett Asher parent article. There were actually a couple articles I read that I thought were really, really good and sort of brought out aspects of the film that, that I kind of, that kind of missed me on the first watch. Um, so there's one on Gizmodo called The Matrix's Queer Subtext is Plain Text in Resurrections. Um, there's one called uh, from Inverse called How 2021 Strangest Sci-Fi Movie Explains Matrix Resurrection's True Meaning. Um, and there's one on Vox called Too Many Movies Right Now Are Quote Unquote About Trauma. The Matrix Resurrections Actually Does the Work. And I'm, I'm, I don't have we don't have time to, to go into like the details of all of them. But I mean, I would definitely recommend people check those out because um, I thought they were all really, really thoughtful. I'll just note on the, the, um, the, the Gizmodo one, it makes the point that both Neil Patrick Harris and the actor who plays Agent Smith in this new movie are openly gay actors. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, if you know that, and a lot of people who watch the movie will know that, it kind of adds this extra valence to this idea of, um, you know, that uh, maybe I should just read the line. This is the line. It says, in 1999, being openly queer automatically made one an enemy of the system. In 2021, this isn't necessarily the case. Rights such as marriage and protection from employment discrimination have at least been written into law, and enough has changed that some, parentheses, mostly cis, mostly white, mostly male, queer people are able to hold power within the system. Um, so I thought that was just a really interesting observation that, yeah. you know, yeah. the, t- the two villains in this movie are, you know, um, Openly gay, played yeah. by openly gay actors. That's cool. Uh, I like that. I mean, Lisa, you said that like all week you've been talking to somebody about trans. Yeah, right, um, right. So I, one of my grad students is actually writing an article on uh, trans issues in The Matrix. And um, she does trans media work and is a trans woman herself. So is thinking about these things a lot. And uh, it's been really interesting. Raphael, she's one of the people who's arguing that the um, action scenes are purposely bad. She thinks that okay. that's part of this. And because she's thinking <laughs> about like, there's this whole idea in queer philosophy about the, uh, the queer art of failure and the idea that what we often call failure um, in our culture is it's a cultural framing. Um, and we tend to think it means the opposite of success, but it doesn't always. And mm. that you need to start shifting and not think about things in binaries like success and failure. So mm. sort of all comes around that way. So we're not supposed to judge the matrix movie right on its, success as a fight movie or it's failure Mm -hmm. like that you just sort of slide around and think about something else yeah absolutely yeah and that's what i've learned from my student this week (laughs) (laughs) i also just this this article it also says that um and i didn't know this but that the character switch from the original matrix movie was originally Mm -hmm. written as trans in the screenplay yeah Yeah. and that the studio was like let's change this it's it's like confusing to people or something well yeah the most interesting thing i think was that um they would have been different genders in the real world versus the matrix. Yes. And so what it would have been right is that, that that character Uh, was going to be able to express their true identity in the matrix. Right. And then that makes things kind of confusing. It's like, well, is it all bad if it allows that expression of identity? And I, 
breaking the binary, right? Right. It's too bad back in 99 they couldn't pull that off. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, they had that whole thing I always liked about the residual self-image. You know, how you look when you're in the Matrix, yeah. you know, is how you think you should look. Right. And they kind of evolved that into the digital self-image that you touched on earlier when, mm-hmm. in the new film. So. Yeah, I, I was thinking like how I don't know how far they have they would have gone with it um, in any event. But I mean, I did, you know, I had a, a professor, my favorite professor from college came out as trans in 2001. And that was the first time I ever heard, I think, the term transgender. And just to think, oh, maybe I could have heard it two years earlier in The Matrix if, you know, um, if that had been incorporated in there. Um, let's see, what else do I have here? I don't know. Is there is there anything else anyone wants to bring up that we haven't uh, touched on about this Ooh. this new Matrix movie? Sure, I'd love to talk about the visuals real quick. Ooh, yeah, yeah, go for it. So this movie did something really interesting to me. Um, you know, when we all watched the Matrix back in '99, the Matrix world was you know supposed to be like ours, but it did have its own unique visual language and color palette. You know, it was tinted green, so it was not actually our world. But this iteration of the Matrix, finally in this film looked exactly like our world, you know, placing it in this time and thereby kind of putting the whole series, tying it into our reality that much better. I thought that was one of the nice little upsides of this film existing. And Ilana certainly wasn't subtle about it, given Merovingian's scathing indictment of the past 20 years, um, <laughs> which I thought was one of the most entertaining bits of the whole movie. And that was a perfect example of how the, the action was meant to be secondary. The most interesting thing about that whole fight sequence was the Merovingian and everything he was saying. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually have. I, agree with I that. actually have that. I have that quote here. He says, "I mean, this is edited a little bit uh, to remove this, some of the swearing and, and stuff." But he says, "You ruined everything. We had grace. We had style. We had conversation. Not this texting, art, films, books were all better. Originality mattered. You gave us Facebook and Wikipedia." Um, so I don't know, Raphael. Are we meant to take that? Is, is he speaking is speaking for the film or are we meant to not take him at face value or I think it works within the within the story um, with how Thomas Anderson ruined things but it also is metatextual of course with how the media and the world can corrupt art and how you referenced earlier like even with the whole red pill thing how that got corrupted. Um, and just, you know, eventually everything kind of got dumbed down. I mean, it's kind of funny that this movie came out at the same time as Don't Look Up, and they actually share a lot of interesting social commentary, in my opinion. Yeah, okay. I haven't seen Don't Look Up yet, so don't, don't, oh, don't that's why I stopped myself. It. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, I mean, did, did everyone see the post credit scene? Yes. Yes. So, so in the post credit scene, um, it's the sort of like douchey tech bro, um, game developer guys and and they say basically um face reality people movies are dead games are dead narrative dead media is nothing but neuro trigger response and viral conditioning what we need is a series of cat videos that we call the cat tricks um so what do people think about that idea of movies are dead and it certainly doesn't seem to me that games are dead seems like games are really flying high still um although i guess they're sort of I guess it's true that everything narrative is sort of being superseded by like YouTube commentary and stuff like that. I guess I guess that is kind of true. But uh, what what do you, what do people think specifically of the movies are dead idea? Because I mean, it does sort of seem like with with um, 
the pandemic and and everything <laughs> like are these big movies like the matrix sort of has has that fin- not- has that peaked and is on its way down I don't think it's just the pandemic. I think it's what we were talking about earlier. Talk to anyone under the age of 25. They don't care about movies. It's true. You know, social media and our devices have ruined people's attention spans. And I actually think you could really closely correlate people's indifference to this film with just how many of them didn't see it in theaters. Because when you're watching a movie at home, the minute you start to get a little restless or check out, you're going to check your phone or, or do this or that. But in a movie, you're actually a captive audience. And a movie that isn't necessarily wowing you right off the bat has the chance to win you over. But when people are just sitting at home watching HBO Max, they're not going to be won over. So You said that you saw this in the theater, Raphael. Yes, the first time, mm-hmm. opening night. Were, what, were there a lot of people there? Yeah, it was. Yeah, for the first few days, I think it was sold out um, in most major cities. But I was actually up in Northern California with my family in the Bay Area. And I'll tell you, I've been spoiled by LA and New York audiences. Uh, (laughs) I'm about to be unpopular with Bay Area people, but the movie audiences up there are just terrible. I mean, they just, <laughs> you get no energy from the audience and it's like a parade to the bathroom. I don't know. They, they feel barely engaged <laughs> to, the, to the film. I mean, you don't get any cheering or applause or anything. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you do get in L.A. And I've just been living in that bubble so long. I, I love it. Yeah, but so, so you think that, like, that, that, that was, was 1999 sort of the peak for science fiction action movies and... Is it just going to be sort of a long, slow, long tail kind of slide from here on out? Or do you think anything would ever no. bring it back? Well, I think we've we've been moving towards a streaming culture for a while. And, you know, a lot of filmmakers saw that coming, like Spielberg and, uh, you know, uh, Lucas talked about it seven or eight years ago that, you know, the, the impending death of movies or the collapse of the cinemas, you know, essentially people only go to the movies now for superhero tentpole movies. And you saw that play out with the matrix for Spider-Man. Even the matrix couldn't get people to come out um, after those first couple nights of diehard fans. Uh, I think, you know, people just want their entertainment in smaller segments. You know, that's why justice league did well for HBO max was basically broken into six chapters. You didn't have to watch all four hours at once. Yeah. I mean, you know, when the matrix came out, that was a big, big deal. And then, you know, uh, like two years later, we had Fellowship of the Ring. And that became a huge cultural, you know, juggernaut. Um, You know, and then we went into the golden age of television. And we're still kind of in that golden age of television. But I think maybe now it'll be the golden age of streaming. And it just seems like audiences keep getting more and more segmented. Yeah. So, you know, you've got your movie fans and they're all talking about the latest like A24 release or the big Marvel release, like different things. Yeah. You find your community online, you find your segment. And I thought that was a a shot in the matrix that really stuck out to me was Neo in the elevator when he was, you know, Mr. Anderson in charge of the gaming company in the beginning. And he's in that routine of like, okay, we're going to work on the matrix again. And it was cut with like these young upstarts talking about like the matrix is like the WTF of ideas or whatever. And then he's slogging through the treadmill. He's Mm -hmm. at the back of the elevator and everybody is looking at their phones except for him. 
Yeah. But, you know, the matrix has just changed. It has. Yeah. You know, just um, there's a there's a popular meme that gets shared a lot, how it's tough to get people to watch movies, but they'll sit down and watch 10 hours of TV. And that's very true yeah. because yeah. – Television is much more of a passive activity. You don't necessarily have to hang on every single word. Um, so, you know, even earlier we talked about how this movie might have been better as a show. And I feel like that's happening more and more. Like Dune Part 1 could have been a TV series. I think it would have been better served. Oh, yes. I would yeah. agree with yeah. that. But it's also people either want to be more passive. And I understand that because, like, I don't know, we're all running the COVID program in the back of our heads. And sometimes it's nice to do nothing, right? But also mm-hmm. people want to be more active. Like, you know, my husband, who's also a science fiction studies professor, like we're watching The Matrix again and again and again here at home. And our 12 year old kid is just like, oh, my God, kill me. I'm like, he's like so un- <laughs> interactive. He's like, I want to go play a game and like get to have like my say in the narrative. And, yeah. You know, <laughs> so I, I totally it, agree with yeah. that. Yeah. You know, I mean, true. I I could look at my phone right now and sign into Rockstar Social mm-hmm. and it will tell you the embarrassing amount of hours <laughs> that I've spent playing Red Dead Redemption 2. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is no less meaning to me than, you know, Star Wars has to someone else right. or, yeah. you know, watching The Matrix has to Raphael. You know, yeah. it's it's all different, well, you know. Well, let me say, I mean, the one sort of action part that really did work for me in this movie was when Neo and Trinity are riding the motorcycle down the city streets and all these people are like smashing through the upper story windows. That really bothered me. That was crazy. That really bothered me. And I think it's just interesting, you know, contrasting this with the first Matrix movie, that in the first movie, the symbols of the oppressive system that is keeping you down is like a government agent. And in this one, it's like masses of people on their phones, basically, that that to mm-hmm. such an extent, you know, anxiety about uh, people controlling our lives has shifted from the government to like online hate mobs. And I think right. that, that, I don't know, well, it, it, that seems. Yeah, even the analyst kind of touched on that very directly when he talked about how uh, people nowadays care more about feelings than facts. I mean, it was all yes. commentary on yeah. post, post-truth. Yeah. Society. Society, yeah. It also feels like a shift that has happened um, in in cyberpunk as a whole, right, over the last 40 some odd years, right? That it was always at first about like big gangs and or failed governments and corporations and these big things. And uh, the stories have shifted more to little people and sort of their participation in the matrix, right? Um, And I think you see that across all kinds of cyberpunk storytelling. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really, you know, I, since I haven't watched The Matrix in so long, it was, and I, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I just went back and watched some of the key scenes. And it was kind of reminding me of a time in the 90s when the internet was really new and exciting yes. Yes. and seemed like so full of possibilities. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and there were really so s- many movies that decade. And all the cyberpunk from that decade is really about like quick revolution, like, People like are trapped in the matrix and then they see the reality and then they, you know, do some cool hacking of some sort and then the revolution happens. And I like that the matrix movies sort of invoked that originally and then kind of resisted it. Yeah, but the, you see this shift from the internet, I, I feel like, from, from movie one to movie four, the shift from the internet seeming new and exciting to yes. seeming ubiquitous and oppressive yeah. yes, or exhausting. 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
exhausting. Yes. Yeah, the, it goes, the internet is so exhausting. It goes it's from true. being a tool of liberation to just another tool of oppression, right? I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, and it's exhausting. I think that that's great. And um, you get that impression with, I think, both Reeves and Moss. They, they seem so tired <laughs> in, their, in their everyday worlds, you know? Yeah. I loved that about Reeves' performance. He seemed so soft-spoken yeah. and and reserved in this film throughout. Mm -hmm. It was such a conscious choice. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, this wasn't John Wick. No. This was, you know, just very different. I thought he did a wonderful job conveying just decades of exhaustion, regrets, weak, you know, weakness, fallibility. Like, I, I loved yeah. it when they're like, are you going to fly now? And he's like... Oh, fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, right, right. You were like 50-something years old. Like, fuck that. I don't have to fly anymore. I, I also <laughs> liked his terror every time someone offered him a pill at the beginning. And he's just like, oh, yeah. hell no, we're not doing this again. And yeah. I, I thought that was good. Um, and I liked because his restraint then allowed Carrie Ann Moss to take up more space. And we got, I thought she had more of a turn to act. And I appreciated that. Yeah, yeah I missed her. I'd yeah. like to see her in more. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're pretty much out of time. So why don't we start getting some final thoughts? So Raphael, final thoughts on this whole experience of watching all these Matrix movies? Well, more than anything, I think the best thing about a legacy sequel is that it gives you a reason to revisit the other films, puts them back into the cultural conversation. Um, but I think this really represented exactly what a legacy sequel ought to be. It's thematically a perfect third chapter because the second and third film are really just one big film. So now it's a true trilogy in my mind. And Lana got the chance to kind of deconstruct her own franchise in an organic way while still servicing the story and the fans in a satisfying way. And it made everything that came before it better somehow. Um, and really focused the through line of the whole franchise on their love story, as Lisa and Teresa said. So, yeah, I, I, I always thought the three films were enough. I never know, knew and I realized, sorry, I never knew I wanted this movie, but I'm really glad we have it now. Mm -hmm. uh, Teresa, final thoughts. Um, I want to see more movies with people in their fifties being badass and, um, falling in love and having emotions and being allowed to age naturally, uh, just as a general rule. Um, I also really enjoyed the concept of fuck binary as a center conceit. And I, you know, enjoyed this as a movie about artistic control and it worked on a lot of levels and has a lot of resonance for different people reading it in ways that they want, like the first Matrix did. But I like that Lana Wachowski really tightly controlled the narrative so that it's her story and how she wants it to try to avoid it being co-opted in the future. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really yeah. clever. Yeah, I mean, I definitely like, you know, I was, I was, you know, somewhat underwhelmed watching it through the first time, but it is a movie that is really interesting to think about and talk about and, and definitely reading a lot of articles online, like I said, of people from different backgrounds and different perspectives made me sort of see a lot of diff a lot of aspects of the movie and, and, and people and why some people have, are really passionate about it. And it was, it's, and I always, you know, it's always good for me to see when people are, you know, love something and are passionate about it. And so it's a movie that, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's necessarily going to blow you away when you first watch it, but it is something. It's a really like, it is a piece of art in the sense that it expresses this some, obviously this sort of personal vision of the filmmaker and 
Um, and there is a lot to say about it, as I, I hope that this panel has, uh, has demonstrated. Um, but uh, Lisa, uh, final word? Uh, yeah, well, what all of you have said, so you've left me in a tricky position here. Um, <laughs> but what I think is, so another thing that I think I really, well, that I really liked, and I think really makes it worth seeing it is that I agree that it sort of it does justice to the series and it, it it's a fun invitation to look backward at at a series of movies that were really important um to a large number of people and that still are. But I think what's even better is is like I was saying a little bit here at the end is it feels to me very much like a contemporary cyberpunk story. Um, not just in that it's moved from sort of amazement at G Wiz sort of attitude about the internet to a sort of more jaded attitude, but really more in terms of, of hope. Um, that even if the revolution doesn't come quickly, or if this involves multiple revolutions, some of which set us two steps back, even when we go three steps forward, right? That there's this hope, uh, that, that, that people can connect and, sort of think logically and rationally and creatively and, and, and make the world maybe a little bit better place. And I think that that's kind of the ultimate science fiction message and a good one for our times. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a perfect note to end on. So why don't we wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with Raphael Jordan, Teresa Delucci, and Lisa Yazik. So thanks everyone so much for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Raphael Jordan, Teresa Delucci, and Lisa Yazik for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guides of the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks, or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. Alright, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.